I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 1 Corinthians chapters 6 through 9. In chapter 6, Paul deals with Corinthian lawsuits. Verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong, and defraud, and that your brethren." Another of the many problems in the church of Corinth that Paul deals with in this passage is that the members of the church took one another to court by filing lawsuits. Paul calls for those disputes to be settled within the church by believers who will serve as judges in such matters. Notice the terminology that Paul uses to identify those who have received Jesus Christ as Savior as opposed to those who have not. In verse 1, he refers to the lost people as unjust, the Greek word adikos, which means unjust or unrighteous, versus saints, which is from the Greek word hagios. That word adikos is used 12 times in the New Testament and is sometimes translated unrighteous, as I mentioned. In reference to humans, it identifies those who have not been saved. In contrast, hagios identifies those who have been saved. In verse 7, Paul points out that the very fact that they're willing to take each other to court is a shortcoming of the fellowship of believers there. The scripture is clear here. Members within the same local assembly should never take one another to secular court over disputes. Let the local church settle these disputes. There's a pattern established by Christ in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 for settling these kinds of disputes. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. It's clear in this passage that Christ intended for disputes among believers to be settled among believers. However, there are two aspects to this that are not clearly defined in Scripture. The first aspect is one to which the disputing believers are in two different churches. Naturally, the preferred course would be to seek cooperation with the other church in resolving the issue according to this passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. 
Now, if the other church refuses cooperation, then the leadership of the first church really has no additional recourse in the matter. Now, personally speaking, I don't feel comfortable tying the hands of the offended church member in such a uh, situation as this. Since there's no clear scripture on this particular caveat, two different churches, and one church is not cooperative, I'm most comfortable leaving the decision of recourse up to the individual believer without being critical of whatever he may decide to do. The second question people ask about church discipline is what you do when the church is ruled according to Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17 and the person is banished from the church for noncompliance. Among conservatives, there are two schools of thought on this issue. Some say that verse 7 is the overriding principle here, which says, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded. However, I wouldn't find fault with the reasoning that once the fulfillment of Matthew eighteen seventeen is realized, in other words, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican, then the offended member is free to treat that banished member as though he were lost with regard to legal steps that he may want to pursue. As I said, I find no conclusive scripture either way on this issue. Perhaps Paul was writing this procedure with some provisions of the Mosaic Law in mind. Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 declare that certain horrendous conduct within Israel was to be dealt with by banishing the offender from the people of Israel altogether. Whether Paul's declaration here was influenced by those passages or not, it's worth noting that God insisted that those offenses were not to be overlooked. It's obvious that Paul's emphasis is the public testimony of the body of Christ before the world in this passage. It doesn't speak well for believers within a local assembly if they can't get along without taking one another before the unjust for judgment on property issues. Paul strengthens his argument with two passing references to believers' responsibilities of judging in the future. That's judging the world in verse 2 and judging angels in verse 3. So what's he talking about? Well, first of all, he undoubtedly was thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. That's where Jesus speaks to the disciples about their role in ruling during the millennium. Furthermore, Paul speaks of the event we commonly call the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, where he says in verse 17, "...and so shall we ever be with the Lord." After the rapture, the white throne judgment takes place in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, along with the judgment of angels mentioned in 2 Peter 2, 4, and also Jude, verse 6. These angels will likely be judged at the same time as Satan in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. During those judgments, raptured believers will be with the Lord. It must be in that context that Paul is speaking here in verses 2 and 3. Now, to show a little contrast, Paul does a takeoff here on people who are considered unrighteous, beginning in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God." And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus 
and by the Spirit of our God. Paul uses the same Greek word here, adikos, in verse 9, in King James Version translated here, unrighteous, as used in verse 1, where the King James Version translates it there, unjust. This is to describe those who've not received Jesus Christ as Savior. Those who are saved shall inherit the kingdom of God, and those who are not saved shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a question that I often get asked, and it's this, can a practicing homosexual really be saved? The answer is here in this passage, a passage that some folks find troubling. As a matter of fact, this is ammunition used by those people who are wrongly convinced that one can lose his salvation under certain circumstances. The principle here is quite clear. Believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have what Romans 8.2 classifies as the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that gives believers direction, the Holy Spirit dwelling within. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. All believers have direction from the Holy Spirit to respond positively toward God. So what happens when a Christian is negatively responsive toward God's leadership? I mean, when they rebel against the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Well, here is what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 says. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons." As Christians, here's the deal. God chastises us when we rebel against the knowledge of James 4.17 provided by the Holy Spirit's presence inside us. Now, here's the extreme case. What about the believer who sets himself against God's will? And here's the answer. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29-32. to 32. In that passage, here's what you find. God takes him out of this world if he doesn't turn from his rebellion. So here's the evidence of Scripture. If a believer is practicing what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, God will take him out of this world to heaven, but out of this world if he chooses to continue in this rebellion rather than responding to God. Now, if he seems to be practicing this conduct without consequence from God's chastening hand, the evidence points to the lack of a salvation experience in the first place. Because Hebrews 12:6, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But under no circumstances are we to understand that a person loses his salvation if he missteps in the direction listed in verses 9 through 11 in this passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The scripture is clear here and other places also that a pattern of rebellious conduct over time without consequence is the indicator. One more thing, many believers are bent on being able to identify the authenticity of another person's salvation decision based upon his conduct. Well, that's not necessary. Let's just let God keep the score. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 deals clearly with exactly how we should deal with others in this respect. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. So here's the deal. Conduct that equates to rebellion against God by believers should not be judged per se 
but rather identified, yes, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Subsequently, that person should be shunned, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 5, so as to encourage that person to correct his actions. Therefore, here's the bottom line on the issue. When a professing believer openly rebels against the mandates of God, treat that person like a non-believer and not as a believer, and at the same time, shame them for their conduct. That's scriptural treatment of this issue. Paul describes the state of believers in verse 11 when he says, And such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the threefold process in verse 11 of what has taken place to make a believer a believer is described as, first of all, being washed, a believer is washed, and secondly, a believer is sanctified, and thirdly, a believer is justified. If you want more detail on that, look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading. If you'd like more information on believer's salvation, then look at the article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, What the Bible Says About Eternal Life. There's a link to it on this page if you're looking at the written notes. Now, because um, inquiring minds want to know, in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading, I've provided uh, a word study on the terms used in verses 9 and 10. Uh, show you what the Greek says and exactly what the Greek means with regard to the conduct being uh, displayed in these verses. I deal with fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. Uh, consult the written notes for today's reading if you want to know more about that. So that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. How do you treat a temple? Verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Paul uses these nine verses to show that sexual immorality uh, is not compatible with Christian living. The Greek influence in Corinth reasoned that just as the body was made for food, it was also made to have an appetite for sexual fulfillment as well. That's the comparison discussed in verse 13 when Paul quotes their sinful Greek-based reasoning, and he says, meats for the belly and belly for the meats. He goes on to say in that verse that um, now the body is not for fornication. 
In other words, sexual fulfillment is not a basic need just as food is. You recall that prostitution was a big trade in Corinth. Look at my introductory remarks on uh, the Church of Corinth and Corinth itself in chapters 1 through 5 in that study that we looked at about four days ago. Paul then distinguishes our relationship to God as being different from the rest of the world with his phrase at the end of verse 13, where he says, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He continues that thought into verse 14 when he says, And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. In other words, whatever the world does, we're different as believers. Finally, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a point that Paul also emphasized back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. In other words, the Holy Spirit dwells within every believer at salvation. That's a fact of Scripture. Romans 8 9, look at that. Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. take a look at that verse. Since we are God's dwelling place, how can anyone possibly suggest that it's appropriate to unite oneself with a prostitute? He makes that point in verse 15. Well, only at Corinth. A fundamental principle is seen in verses 19 and 20 regarding our spiritual state as believers. God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, just as he did the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. In other words, we carry God around within us. We are his dwelling place. So here's the question. To what kind of places are you going to carry God? These verses set the state for the discussion of chapter 7 regarding sexual appetite. Paul expresses the complete unacceptability of a believer uniting with a prostitute in verse 15, where he alludes to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This one flesh understanding of marriage, and thus the result of sexual relations, was also referenced by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, and also Mark chapter 10, verse 8. And then by Paul again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. In other words, uh, sexual relations are completely appropriate within the context of marriage, but completely inappropriate outside of marriage, which is the point of chapter 7. So here we are in chapter 7 where Paul deals with marital intimacy issues. Let's read the first verse. Now concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. In verse 1 here, the Greek word for touch is hoptomai, which is literally, and it should have been translated, touch. This touch here is a reference to sexual intimacy, as it is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, where we find its Hebrew equivalent. It's just a discreet way of saying sexual intimacy. It should be considered a translation error to translate verse 1 as follows, It is good for man not to marry. While a popular translation has rendered it as such, the Greek word for marry is gameo, 
it's not found in this verse anywhere. As a matter of fact, the um, m- the concept of marriage is not to be understood here. Paul is promoting an unmarried life in this chapter based upon the present distress, his quote in verse 26. In other words, the conditions within the Roman Empire for believers at the time of Paul's writing here were becoming such that Paul was recommending a life that was uncumbered with the responsibilities associated with having a spouse. Undoubtedly, he has in mind the extreme persecution which existed against believers at the hand of the Romans. Nero was very cruel. He was Roman emperor who began his reign when he was 17 years old in 54 A.D. First Corinthians was written around 57 A.D. Nero's persecution of Christians is well documented. He put them to death for merely claiming to be Christians. Paul does then point out that once married, there is an intimacy protocol between husbands and wives that should be observed. In short, husbands and wives are to strive to satisfy the sexual appetites of their spouses so that there will be no temptation to resort to the unacceptable conduct of chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. If you'd like to uh, find more information on the issue of fasting, uh, which was mentioned in this passage, then look at the notes that I've written on Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 21. And incidentally, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, there's a link right there on the page. You can click go right to it. What about a single life? Well, he deals with that in verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn." Now, the topic of verses 1 through 5, which we saw earlier, leads Paul to expand his comments on the issue of marriage itself. Paul extends his comments in verse 6 by saying, I speak this by permission and not a commandment. Now, let's be clear about what's meant by that statement. Paul is differentiating between actual verbal commands of Christ, which serve as a precedent, as opposed to issues of marriage never dealt with specifically by Christ in his earthly ministry. Here, Paul is recommending a single life like his own. He's pointing out that there's no command of Christ recommending a single life. But Paul considered the times critical. In verse 9, he advocates marriage for those who struggle to contain their sexual appetites, as described in verses 1 through 5, when he says this, But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, I'm confident that burn with lust is what's meant here, although that cannot be proved by the Greek construction of the sentence itself. What about divorce? He deals with that in verses 10 through 16. Verse 10, And unto the unmarried I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest I speak, I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean? But now are they holy? But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Now verse 10 here contains the phrase, And unto the married I command yet not I, but the Lord. In differentiating from his statement in verse 6, Paul is pointing out that he's preparing to deal with an issue specifically addressed by Christ in his earthly ministry. Therefore, this is a precedent from Christ himself. What is that precedent? Well, here it is. The wife is not to leave her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried. Likewise, the husband should not put away his wife. Christ addressed this issue specifically in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, paralleled by Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and also in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. And that's the reason he lists this as a commandment from the Lord. Yeah, but what if your husband or wife isn't saved? I mean, what about that issue? Well, Christ didn't specifically deal with this scenario. That's why Paul says in verse 12, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Here's where Paul says, If they'll stay, then keep them. You can still have a Christian home, in other words, sanctified, set apart to the Lord, if just one of the marriage partners is saved. He says that in verse 14. Moreover, your children will be the products of a Christian home. I think the principle here probably alludes to the household-wide adherence to Judaism in the Old Testament. If the head of the household was an observant Jew, so was everyone within the household considered to be. Here in verses 12 through 14, Paul seems to be declaring that one saved parent, husband or wife, makes it a sanctified, Greek word used there, hagiazo, means to be set apart, makes it a sanctified Christian household, thus resulting in children who are holy, the Greek adjective there is hagias. Notice that it's the same comes from the same root word as hagiazo, the verb used earlier in that verse. It means to be dedicated or set apart. Again, since salvation is by individual faith, this verse does not declare anyone saved by default. Verse 16 declares this. However, the unsaved spouse may choose to leave. Well, you can't tie them up and make them stay, can you? Not in a marriage. Paul's releasing the abandoned spouse from responsibility here in verse 15 when he says a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Greek construction for is not under bondage comes from the Greek verb doulao, and it means to enslave. The parsing of the word is third-person singular perfect passive indicative. Literally translated, it would be this has not been enslaved. But everyone wants to know, does that mean the abandoned marriage partner can remarry? Well, that's where the discussion heads in the next few verses. So that brings us to chapter 7, beginning now with verse 17. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches." Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. 
circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. In these verses, Paul once again addresses the situation of marriage within the context of the atrocities that surrounded them with regard to the severe persecution of Christians from Nero and the Roman government. Paul says that no one should divorce based upon these circumstances. But he seems to be recommending remaining single if one was currently in that state. He undoubtedly has in mind the ministry he conducted while in prison a ministry which would have been hampered had there been a wife who needed care during those prison years. So he concluded this topic by saying in verse 24, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. To make his point, he uses a hot topic analogy, and that's circumcision. It had been settled back at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that circumcision had nothing whatsoever to do with salvation. However, it wasn't wrong for a Gentile to seek circumcision. In this context, however, he's showing that even circumcised Jews were not necessarily in favor with God in the Old Testament. Favor with God depended on their personal relationship with God. Likewise, married or unmarried doesn't make one person any more or less favored before God. Then we have the issue in verses 25 to 40, to marry or not to marry. Verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. Yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And... They that use this world as not abusing it for the fashion of this world passeth away. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction." But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. 
Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. So Paul has just been discussing the issue of remaining as you are with regard to marital status based upon the critical times in which they lived. And again, probably referring to the great persecution of Christians at the hands of the Roman Empire under Nero. The exact meaning of verse 25 just cannot be known precisely. Who are these virgins about whom Paul is speaking here? Since the biblical pattern up to this point was for a woman to leave her father's house and go to her husband's house in marriage, perhaps it is referring here to, to all unmarried women. However, based upon the instructions of verses 34 to 38, perhaps verse 25 is specifically referring to those women who are betrothed to a man, which means a legal contract without a marital consummation. Perhaps Paul is encouraging them to remain that way, betrothed without consummation. Paul does point out in verse 25, he says, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. Here's what he's saying here. He's saying that this subject is not dealt with specifically by Christ, but he's writing concerning the issue in light of the current persecution of believers. So considering Paul's discussion over the last several verses leading up to this passage concerning the virtues of remaining single, is it a sin to go ahead and marry? Well, he says, no, it's not a sin. He hastens to point out that it is best for the unmarried to remain unmarried and that the married seek not to be loosed from their marriages. But if one does choose to marry, it's not a violation of Paul's counsel here. He just warns them that they acquire baggage when they do so in light of the current wave of Christian persecution. But it's not a sin. Many have sought to isolate Paul's comments on marriage in this passage simply to the context of divorced persons remarrying. Hey, this passage is much broader than that. Paul's discouraging all marriage for believers in light of the persecution to which they were subjected under Nero. I'm distressed that some Christians teach that when divorced people remarry, that they're living in sin. I mean, how does the concept of living in sin even fit into our scriptural doctrine of salvation and forgiveness anyway? That's a ridiculous teaching. Paul says in verse 27, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. The to be loosed of verse 27 is translated from one Greek word, lusus. And this word is only used once in the New Testament. It means divorce in this context, although the word generally means release. The verb form of that word, luo, is used in the sentence that follows. It's the second part of verse 27. In this Greek form, it's the second singular perfect passive indicative. Literally, based upon the, uh, the conjugation that I just gave you, literally the phrase should be understood as, you have been released. It's not conceivable that Paul was speaking of never-been-married people in verse 27 with that phrase, as some have asserted. That's important to understand because of the first phrase of verse 28, which says, But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. 
Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. Again, let me point out that it does a disservice to Scripture to teach that a person who marries after being abandoned by a spouse is sinning by doing so or is living in sin. That simply cannot be derived from this passage of Scripture. In verses 29 to 35, Paul again explains the rationale for not taking on the burden of a spouse in light of the persecution that existed against Christians during this period in the Roman Empire. This admonition concerns all people, whether previously married or not, who lived during this great persecution. So, who's this virgin in verse 36? Well, some have suggested that the reference to he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin is talking about the father of an unmarried woman. I don't think so. That doesn't make sense without some massaging of the phraseology used here. To adhere to this point of view, one must creatively render the last phrase of that verse, let them marry. The Greek form is not passive. It's not passive voice, nor is it in English or Greek. It doesn't say anything about being given in marriage, example of passive voice, by the way, as would be the case if it were talking about being given by a father. I think that this verse is probably addressing a couple who is betrothed to be married but decides not to consummate the marriage in light of the critical situation of the persecution of believers. However, as time goes on and she reaches her prime, still unmarried and not eligible to marry someone else, well, because she's legally betrothed already. Then Paul says, let the man know that he's not violating Paul's counsel to go ahead and consummate the marriage relationship with his betrothed. That position makes sense, given the specific wording of this passage. If you'd like to know more about the betrothal aspect of getting married as outlined in the Scripture, look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 in the notes that I've written there. In summary, I think it's clear that 1 Corinthians 7 was written in light of a critical set of circumstances. My wife Evelyn was particularly moved by the autobiography of Gracia Burnham. She and her husband Martin served in the Philippines with New Tribes missions until they were captured by Muslims and held for ransom for an extended period of time. He was shot and killed as the Philippine army attempted to rescue them on June 7, 2002. Throughout their captivity, Martin had numerous opportunities, whereas he could have escaped himself, but he didn't feel comfortable doing so for fear of his wife's safety. I think this serves as a small example of what Paul is discussing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul uses himself as an example in this chapter. He didn't seem to mind being in prison for those years. However, had there been a wife needing provisions back at home, he would have been under pressure to provide. Paul seems to be simply suggesting in this passage the efficiency of an unencumbered single life in light of the times of persecution that they were experiencing. All right, now it's time to talk about those idols. In verse 1 of chapter 8, Now is touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, 
the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. But if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat maketh my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Well, Paul starts this discussion out, but he actually doesn't finish this discussion till the end of chapter 10. So we'll start the discussion here, but wait to tie up the loose ends in the notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 33, which we'll be looking at in four days. The issue here, per se, is eating meat offered to idols. You may recall that this is not a new issue to the early believers. It was dealt with at the Jerusalem Council convened by James back in Acts chapter 15, some eight or so years, well, about 49 A.D. is when that happened. And this is some eight or so years before Paul's writing here to the Corinthians. Obviously, their decree from that council in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, didn't settle the issue. The decree was designed to appease the Jewish believers without imposing the Mosaic law on these new Gentile believers. In other words, it was a compromise designed to help observant Jewish and Gentile believers with differing cultural experiences, help them live together in harmony. Corinth is hundreds of miles from communities dominated by Jewish practices, and the issue is being dealt with from a different perspective. Simply stated, here's that perspective. Is it a sin in itself? per se, for a believer to eat meat that has been offered in sacrifice to an idol. By the way, you'll notice in Acts chapter 15 that the discussion there was not centered around whether or not it is a sin, but rather whether or not it is good, the word used good in Acts chapter 15 verse 28, to observe those restrictions in light of the existing conflict among Jewish and non-Jewish believers. As a matter of fact, the letter that was authored as a reply back then concluded in Acts chapter 15, verse 29 with the statement like this, says this, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well. There was no statement of absolute sin attached with the practice. So here's Paul's decree on the issue. The practice of eating that meat offered in sacrifice to an idol is not a sin in itself, but some believers earnestly believe that it is wrong anyway. He emphasizes that it is inappropriate to evaluate one's spiritual condition based upon just one standard of practice when he says in verse 3, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. And what about all these temple gods to whom the meat was offered? Well, there's his answer in verse 6, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. In other words... They ain't nothing. Paul tells those believers who have a clear perspective in recognizing that there's no sin involved here to be considerate of the less mature believers who are offended at the practice. In Romans chapter 14, Paul refers to these less mature brethren as 
weak brethren, an implication of being weak in the faith or weak in their understanding of scriptural principles. He warns mature believers to be conscious of the weak believers in verse 9 when he says, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Paul therefore says in verse 13, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, here's an important principle for mature believers. Mature believers take great care in not letting their liberty in Christ have a negative impact on their testimony. That careful and reserved conduct by Christians should extend to all controversial issues of Christian living. Now, if you like the rest of the discussion on this issue, then you're going to need to skip over to the written notes of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 33. So, that brings us to chapter 9. Paul talks about his apostleship. Is he an apostle or is he not an apostle? Verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this, Have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time in his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard, and eateth not the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth the flock, and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be done so unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily that, when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Well, in this chapter, Paul defends his apostleship. The Greek word for apostles, apostolos. That's the general word used in that day for a messenger. So an apostle of Christ is a messenger of Christ. An apostle of God is a messenger of God. The word of the New Testament came to be a description of those original twelve who were called by Christ in the Gospels. However, Paul points out in verse 1 that he saw Christ on the road to Damascus and visited heaven and described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10. through 10. 
In other words, while he was not called like Peter, John, and others during the earthly ministry of Christ, he was nonetheless called on the road to Damascus just as they were. One problem, though, Peter had already appointed a twelfth apostle in Acts chapter 1 before Paul came on the scene. Incidentally, you'll notice in the study of Acts chapter 1 that there's really only scriptural provision for twelve apostles, not thirteen. And Paul definitely claims that twelfth spot here in this passage. Incidentally, if you're questioning where I come up with the claim that there's only provisions for 12 apostles, then look at my notes on Acts chapter 1, and I'll show you a couple scriptural references where it said 12 apostles, not 13. The issue in this chapter is really, why should these Corinthians pay any attention to Paul's words to them? Since the church was quite divided, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3, There were those in the church there whom Paul anticipated would not be receptive to his harsh words concerning their wayward conduct. Paul uses several verses in this chapter, verses 3 through 14, to point out that a gospel minister is properly financially supported by those to whom he ministers. In verse 9, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, to validate that even the ox had a right to the nourishment of the corn while he was plowing. Likewise, a minister is deserving of the financial fruits of those to whom he's ministering spiritually. Moreover, the temple priests are sustained by the sacrifices made by the people. He points that out in verse 13. He caps off this discussion with verse 14, which says, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now, that being said, Paul then concedes that even though it would be proper for the Corinthians to lend to his financial support, He's declined to take their support so far. It appears that his reasoning here was desire to refrain from receiving support from a church having so many problems with carnality. In verses 16 and 17, he points out that necessity is laid upon him by God to preach and minister. He doesn't do it for a paycheck. In verse 18, he emphasizes that this strategy gives him liberty to speak uncompromisingly. Now let's look at verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Verse 20, And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In verses 19 to 27 here that we just read, Paul explains the limitations he's placed upon himself for the sake of the gospel, and that he's determined to live his life for the benefit of other people. He blended into the community to which he was ministering in order to gain their respect. And that's what he conveys in verses 19 to 23. 
to the Jews in verse 20 and Gentiles without the law in verse 21 and weak Christians, which we talked about in chapter 8 in verse 22. In verses 14 to 27, Paul compares ministering for Christ to an athletic competition. Winners endure hardships and training to attain the excellence for victory. That's the way Paul viewed his ministry. He encourages the Corinthians to catch that vision of ministry also when he says in verse 24, So run that ye may obtain. After all, it's a battle, according to his own words in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In fact, it's not just a battle of personal satisfaction, but a battle for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls. Paul understood that to win this battle meant to focus on the objective. He said in verses 26 and 27 here, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now there's a man who was serious about his ministry. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.